Let's get started. So, uh, hello and welcome to the Shades of Green podcast. I'm uh, Juanita Garcia. My name is Bryant Williams. I'm the uh, Ali Shahid Muhammad to her Q-tip, the abstract. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of a love movement today. Like, we got the beautiful weather outside. Like, you know, it's been a couple weeks worth of 60-degree uh, weather in the Chicago area. Um, we, it's, a, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the Kanye sisters, Beatrice and uh, Jessica. Well, actually, yeah, that's that's it for the introduction. Oh. You got to bring it yourself. Like, you know. Hello, so, hey. So. I thought there was going to be some intro music. No, 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 no. Like, very stripped down podcast here. Though. Like, it's minimalist. <laughs> At any rate, Jessica, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us, Beatrice. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank it's great you. to be here. So, yeah, so this is the first time we've had sisters on the yeah. on the show. like Or siblings, sister, I should say. Sister. <laughs> <laughs> and so like so jessica you and i go back quite a actually quite a ways you know quite a while now um you know i'm in um i'm the president of the um, board for the southeast environmental task force almost eight years ago when i first joined the organization you were just exiting as our environmental educator right yeah that's exactly yeah i think you came on board like a, just a few months before i left yeah mm-hmm Okay. So what have you been up to since then? Since the Southeast Environmental Task Force? Yeah, oh. I mean, we don't, we're going to walk it through like every <laughs> single step, you know. <laughs> I've been involved in a lot of things. Um, I pursued some work in sustainable agriculture for a while internationally cool. through the Peace Corps. Um, and then decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, came back and worked with the Field Museum in their environment, culture, and conservation department. Okay. Doing their Mighty Acorns and environmental leadership internship. Right. So that that group is now called the Keller Scientific Group. You know, it's gone through a couple different changes. Yeah. When I was leaving there, they had just gotten a new president, the Mm -hmm. Field Museum, and they were restructuring the departments and centers. So I think it's called the Science Action Center or something like that. Yeah. Right. It's gone through a couple different phases. So. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then decided that I wanted to do higher education. Okay. So I went and got my master's in higher ed and am back in Chicago. I was working for the University of Michigan for a little bit where I did my master's and then came back to Chicago to work on college access for Latino students in Little Village. Cool. Cool. So Beatrice, you're still in Ann Arbor, correct? I am in Ann Arbor. Um, I finished up grad school about a year and a half ago and then um, got a position with the university and decided to stay for a little longer. Okay. What exactly are you doing with the university? I work in the School of Natural Resources and Environment um, on the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program, which is hosted out of the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in SNRE. Um, I'm the program manager, so I... Um, do a lot with the students in terms of writing curriculum and um, leading seminars with them and also providing a lot of uh, professional development. Oh, very cool. And that's with your mentor while you were there was Dr. Taylor, right? Dr. Desita Taylor? Yes, and now she is my supervisor, so we're oh, still fine. together. <laughs> very cool. So now, if I remember, Jessica, you're a couple years older than... Yeah, we'll just say I'm a few years old. Okay. I said a couple, so I was like, I was limiting it. (laughs) Sure. Um, 
What side of town are you guys from? If I remember, you're from the north side, correct? Like Northsiders, or am I wrong? Am I just guessing? I'm th- like, help me out here. There was no Wikipedia page. <laughs> north <so>. side. <laughs> so no, yeah, we're from the northwest side, from so, Albany Park. Right, so how oh. did you wind up working with the Southeast Environmental Task Force? Like, so after I graduated from undergrad, um, I was job searching, and mm-hmm. I did um, some work as a as a science educator taking science programs to schools all around the Chicagoland area. Um, And that was a job that I had found on the Chicago um, Environmental Network, I think it's called. Okay, yeah. And then they had posted the position at CDEF, which was um, full-time with benefits and doing more of the community work that I wanted to do in terms of environment. So, because I've always been interested in people and their natural environment and how they kind of relate to each other sure um so then i applied for that and i remember thinking oh it's in chicago i see the addresses in chicago but not realizing (laughs) that it was basically at the border of indiana so i remember when i went out for my interview i thought wow this is really far yeah yeah so what i guess what drew you to to the environmental field like you know, you don't see too many siblings that grow up, both grow up and like, oh, I want to work in the environmental field. Like, you know, it's like, you know, you see one and not the other in many fields. I think like in most, you know, I guess occasionally you'll have some siblings that both want to go into medicine or some of the more traditional. Or they have a family sort of industry exactly. that everyone sort of gravitates mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Do you want to go first, Bethany? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that um, was just our mom taking a really big interest in what we thought was interesting. Um, she worked over 60 hours a week, um, but every summer she dedicated and um, take her daughters to all of the zoos and aquariums and museums. And, um, you know, living in Chicago, sometimes the access to green space, um, especially before, is, was difficult to find, and especially where we lived. Um, so we were exposed to the environment and every, you know, different aspects of it through that, through her taking time off of work and um, really wanting us to be exposed to those things. And I think a really deep appreci- appreciation for nature and understanding of the environment um, grew from there. And yeah, I think, I think that's right. That's, um, that's true. Like my mom did really try to, whatever we liked, she would always kind of like see what she can get, um, to, to help us to foster that, um, that interest. So for example, when I started showing interest in animals, like she went out and got me a subscription to zoo books. Right. And so, so she was definitely a very big part of that, but I would also like to add that I think our trips to Mexico in the summer, we would, um, most of our family lived in Mexico. And so we would spend our summers, uh, we would spend our summers in Mexico and, uh, or a good portion of our summers and going from being indoors all day because it wasn't very safe to be outdoors or because we needed somebody to always be watching us to being outside like the entire day and no one caring even where we were Um, you know what region of mexico did you visit um we were going to michoacan 
mm-hmm. um, which also is really popular. Or people know about Michoacan because of the monarch butterflies right, right. migrating there. Mm-hmm. And so the town that our family is from is just a few miles from the monarch sanctuary as well. So oh, wow. we grew up like hearing stories about the monarchs as well. So I think that um, those summers had a lot to do with it too. We were still living in a town or like a, a town in Mexico, but there was mountains around and we got to be outside in the gardens and things like that. So uh, how, would you, how would you define an environmentalist? I'm going to start with Beatrice first. when I think of environmentalists and um, especially having worked with young people in the environmental field and encouraging um, you know pro-environmental behaviors um, I I think what makes an environmentalist I think of stewardship a lot of times Um, Mm -hmm. I think of an appreciation um, for the environment but I also um, think of people who want to be agents of change and I think that's just a lot about um that comes from the work that I'm currently doing um with a lot of youth that are really inspiring um and that at a really young age um want to be agents of change and see their changing environment and um want to be able to make decisions about where they come from and how um their environment affects them so I think a lot about that, yeah. And it's always a part of that for me is an, envir- uh, an environmentalism, is, um, activism and environmental justice. I think they're all kind of related. And I, and I get that. Um, I think that for me actually comes from, you know, my relationship with my sister and kind of her interests um, that came from a very, very early age. She was the first environmentalist in my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, um, like, she, like, uh, Mexico and my mom, like, they were reasons why I became interested in the environmental field. Um, but I would, you know, tag along with my big sister all the time. And if she was doing something and if she was interested in something, I was definitely there, too. Um, yeah. Jessica, did you see yourself as an environmentalist at a really young age? I don't I think I don't think I knew that word mm-hmm. until probably high school. Mm-hmm. Um but I definitely considered myself a nature and animal lover. Mm-hmm. Um since I was really young and also um and I didn't really see the connection between the two when I was super young but also a science lover. Mm-hmm. Like for me it was about wonder curiosity and love for just knowing and why things are the way they are right and so that's kind of like what drew me to always you know read or watch programs and then the more I knew the more in love I would fall with nature and animals and so by the time I got into high school it was about well then I have to take care of them right Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility and so I think that that's where the environment that's when I started thinking of myself more as an environmentalist and then like as an adult I learned about environmental justice mm-hmm. and then that's like you become environmentalist to an activist right. um, so it's kind of like a, a, a transition or something mm-hmm. of some sorts so it sounds like both of you knew when you were going to college that you wanted to go in the environmental field like is that, is that the case 
or you wanted to work in the environment or in some way, shape or form around nature, I should say? For me, it was. <laughs> I went into college um, as a journalism major. Really? And then actually graduated in social welfare. Yeah, so. But so, um, like, so then how did you switch? How, what made you make the switch over towards um, environmental justice then? Or did you see that? So, like, Van Jones initially was a social justice work, um, worker, activist, but he saw the green for all as a way to kind of incorporate both. Is that is that kind of what you saw? Like, there's an intersectionality between social justice and environmentalism? Or, like, what was your motivating factor? Um, yeah, I think... It was, I mean, I think my sister plays a really big role in that. And, you know, it was always part of our life from a very early age. And um, I remember uh, starting college and um, she knew that I had this interest in environmental justice, especially food justice, and Mm -hmm. encouraging me to apply to a position um, with El Vejo um, to work in their community gardens. Um, And I remember interviewing and them saying, you know, you're a journalism major. Like, how does this connect? And I had just a a strong passion for social justice and for the environment. And um, I remember this so vividly as part of my (laughs) interview. I was like, you know, why wouldn't a journalism major want to work in a garden? Um, You know, to me, it always made sense. And um, that's what it was all throughout college. All of the internships that I took and volunteer opportunities, they were always environmental justice or um, related. And a lot of the reasons I think I didn't pursue that in college was because I, um, I saw that the environmental field was um, very male and white dominated, especially. So I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and Madison is very different from <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Um, so white, it, was a, it was a difficult transition and being the first in my family to go away to college um, and not having that support there. And um, it was, you know, it took me some time and I took a lot of mentorship and it wasn't until um, I had a professor who identified as Chicana and she was working on environmental justice work mm-hmm. in Madison um, with the Latino community. She, she was like, you know, you can do this. You can do this in grad school. Um, she's like, you're very much qualified she's like and you'll definitely succeed and that was the first time that you know a professor someone who had a phd had told me that Mm -hmm. um and then that's when i was actually going into and this is the funny part uh, i was going into higher ed um and then she's like no this is the environmental justice field is your passion um so i just scrapped that and applied to snre Cool. So did you have a little bit of a break in between undergrad and grad school? Because if I remember, so we met like um, through EOC, you and I, uh, Beatrice, mm-hmm. and you wound up working for the Botanic Gardens College for Science first program over over the course of a summer or a couple summers. Yeah, I did it for a couple of summers. Um, I did have a break. I took some time and I was doing more community um, based participatory research and then um also doing some advising um, at the university, um, so I was doing that, and and to me it was it was great and looking more into social justice. Um, but there was that environmental part that I missed a lot, so that's sure. why um, you know I was really excited to work for Science First, um, especially in environmental education. Yeah, yeah, no, it's an awesome program. Yeah. It's a really cool program. 
So Jessica, where'd you go to undergrad? You, were you local? You yeah, stayed I stayed at home, um, which was the norm for our family, right? If you're going to go to college, then you have to live at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to Loyola University in Rogers Park. Okay. Um, and I majored in anthropology and oh. minored in environmental studies. So it was about, I was always fascinated with people because I saw people too as like, another species, another animal, and, like, <laughs> yeah. the most fascinating of them all, um, and how they interact with their environment. Yeah. Do you still have ties to the to Loyola University, to the campus now? Like, they've made so many leaps and strides with their environmental program over the last five to, I'd say five years, maybe seven. We could stretch it. Yeah, as when I got into higher ed, I visited the, cam- the campus a couple times, looking at, looking at it through a higher ed lens mm-hmm. but um so i saw all the changes but i don't have any ties with anyone there anymore okay um yeah but yeah so i i went to school at loyola and i knew going in like i declared my anthropology major during my summer orientation uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that was because i had worked at the field museum almost every summer throughout high school and was introduced to all these different science fields. And when I got introduced to anthropology, which I used to think was just you study old clay pots, um, <laughs> but then found out like all the fields and it just amazed me. And I got to work with anthropologists. Um, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I declared it during my summer orientation and stuck through it the whole way and then picked up environmental studies along the way. Yeah. So, but now I do higher ed because uh, there was a moment where I was doing a lot of the environmental education work in the city and working primarily with students of color Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about my experiences Mm -hmm. in higher education. And then I took, I did a year of grad school at Cornell University in um, international agriculture and rural development Mm -hmm. and it was a really negative experience in terms of campus climate campus Mm -hmm. racial climate and so um i started to reflect on the fact that yeah diversity (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry it's a call back to what was that our second episode yeah something like that (laughs) sorry no 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 problem um but just how the students that i was working with when I had them, when they were in high school and middle school, they were so excited about science and like so in love with it and nature, just like I was. Mm-hmm. But then, and we were always pushing them to go to college and get degrees in, in these fields. But I always thought their experience is going to be similar to mine. Right. And, yeah. and it's going to be really tough. Yeah. And so I wanted to be on the other end to sure. support them. I wanted to learn how the structure worked and how what we can do to make sure that underrepresented students, students of color, um, find that support in the sciences and environmental conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that's why I decided to do higher ed. And so I did higher education with a concentration in diversity and social justice. It really sounds like... Um you and Beatrice, your uh, your educational backgrounds and your kind of work history or work experiences kind of complement each other quite a bit. Do you have have you guys worked in tandem any at any organizations or do you have any projects in tandem currently? Um, I wouldn't say we've never. Have we ever worked on a project together? <laughs> Not the well. There was like the farmers from Michoacan that came that one time. 
I don't know if that was. I was at CDEF and she yeah, was at El Valor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were working with someone from U.S. Forest Service. It was the U.S. Forest Service, and we somehow collaborated. So Mike Rizzo? Yes, it was Mike. Rizzo. <laughs> <laughs> you can drop his name. Like we talk, we spent an episode talking about like how Mike Rizzo. So, um, Mike Rizzo is one of the like more mature people. I'm air quotes here. Cold word, for, cold word for old. He's one of the <laughs> more mature environmentalists of color in the um, Chicago area. But like, he's got ties to all these um, environmental organizations in some way, shape, or form. Especially um, uh, environmental organizations that have a you know focus on people of color. You know, El Bejo, um, CDF, uh Tony Anderson's organization, SKSL, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, like, there's so many people. Karina uh, Ruiz when she was with SCA mm-hmm. to now with. She's with um, Audubon Society, uh, Eden's Place. You know, he's brought a lot of funding and a lot of mentorship to a lot of these organizations. So, yeah, if we get the chance to talk about Mike and shout him out, we always do. So, <laughs> yeah. It's good people. So I was just emailing him. I emailed him earlier this week, actually, just to say what's up. So, sorry. Right. Go ahead. So, meet you. It's always good to hear about Mike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you guys did get to work together on that? Um we did. I think the organizations that we were working for um, were collaborating with a group of farmers in, that work right outside of um, our dad's hometown in Mexico. So it was really interesting that we got to meet with them and talk with them about um, projects that support, um, you know, organic farming. And then we actually that summer went to Mexico and we visited them together and we got to see their farm and um, a lot of the projects that they were, that they were working on. So it was, that was a really great experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great because I wasn't working on that project, but um, when they came to visit Beatriz um, reached out to me to bring them to the Southeast side and have them see some of the gardens. So I was able to organize a trip or a, a guided tour of some of the community gardens on the southeast side. And then, like she said, we got to go visit them in their, where they live and see, and they even fed us and yeah. <laughs> gave us going away gifts. Oh, so cool. it was really great. Mm-hmm. So what you, now you're working for El Velor now, correct? Jessica? No, I work for Enlace Chicago, Enlace. which is oh, a community-based organization I in the was village. One of the two. Okay, so all right, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there. I apologize for confusing the two. Oh no, it's okay. Um, so I work for the Little Village Education Collaborative, mm-hmm. which is housed in Enlace, um, and what we do is we bring together over 40 multi-sector partners um, to talk about education mm-hmm. and creating a pipeline of education for residents in Little Village. So we work on the cradle to old age model. So we have um, a committee on early childhood education, one on K through eight education, high school and post-secondary, which is a committee I work with, Mm -hmm. and then adult education. And my job is the college pipeline specialist. So I get to work with parents. I lead... um, an initiative called Parent Leaders for College, where parents learn about everything they need to know about college to support their kids, 
Uh, so it's not only like filling out FAFSA, but it's like, what is it like for a Latino student at a predominantly yeah. white institution? Right, right. You know, what is student development theory? And we talk about those things. How can they support their students? Like what cultural knowledge and wealth do they already possess that's mm-hmm. going to help their kids get to and through college? Um, and so, so I work with parents, and then I also work with counselors and advisors from K through 12. Um, streamlining communication between them so that they can uh, work together and make smoother transitions for students between middle school to high school. And then there's a research component where I look at what does the educational pipeline look like for our students right now, Mm -hmm. specifically um, going from high school to college. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like now? Well, I think uh, one thing that I've been working a lot with the University of Chicago Consortium to and through Mm -hmm. data And what I've been able to find is that um, Little Village high school students um, are stereotypically marked as not college material or not academically prepared for college. Mm -hmm. But what I'm finding is that they are academically prepared for college. Actually, about 60% of their moderately qualified students, which are those students who can go to at least a four-year non-selective university, don't even apply to college. And so, and they're highly selective students, which are those that can go to very selective Mm -hmm. um, higher ed institutions, Um, about 30% of them a year don't apply to college. So it's not that they're not college ready, it's that there are all these other factors. It's very complex that we need to, the adults that are around need to start working and talking together, both at the high school side, as well as the higher ed institution side, as well as the community. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to have those conversations. Well, those conversations have been going on for about two years now. Very cool. So have you guys, have you guys uh, thought about working together in the future? Have you guys thought about like projects? Yeah, because... There's a couple things that I picked up. Like, so um, Beatrice, I remember you mentioning food justice, having a uh, pretty strong interest in food justice earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, given, you know, that you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're still based in Ann Arbor, correct? Yes. So, you know, um, given the proximity of Ann Arbor to Detroit, um, I, you know, what's college in Michigan? I know a little bit about the way <laughs> lay of the land over there. So, um, you know, given Ann Arbor's proximity to Detroit, I was wondering if there's any, have you had any opportunities to, you know, be it through volunteer or um, opportunities or through the um, University of Michigan, have you um, worked in any capacity in Detroit, in the Detroit area around food justice or food sovereignty, um, food production? You know, I remember um, to preface, to frame this question, you know, um, in 2014, 2013, 2014, when the um, hardest hit funds were being poured into the city of Detroit for the um, massive uh, blight reduction project that they were pushing, um, the population had dwindled down to somewhere in the range of 600,000 people within the city of Detroit, but they only had two full-scale grocery stores within the city limits. You know, wow. so there was a serious food, you know, food sovereignty, food um, justice issue within the city. So I was wondering if that's something that you've taken a part of, or if that's something that you've that you you've thought about at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so one of the 
reasons why I decided to apply to um, the School of Natural Resources was specifically because of Dorcita Taylor's work. And um, right when I was applying, she had just gotten a grant um, from the USDA to look at food access across Michigan. Um, so I worked on that throughout my um graduate studies and my time in SNRE um, looking at food access and disparities and we were looking at it so broadly and Michigan is actually a really big state um, yes, it is, yeah. most people don't know yeah it's huge I mean, it really it's is well, how like, much agriculture how much is I imagine that you know, like typically the agricultural side so um, I-69 kind of bisects the state you know like yeah. at least the southern portion of the state I sixty nine X is like a pretty strong um, divider. So I'm, I'm holding. You get this isn't He's a video podcast, but I'm holding the mitten up. You know, like I lived there long Are enough. You showing that the mitt? I am. I lived there long enough that like my life is. You know, it's um, it's it's to it's to scale. You know what I'm saying? The lifeline is Interstate sixty nine. I I got I thirty one over here and all that good stuff. So at any rate, um, the eastern half of the state is far more. Um, I'm sorry, the western half of the state is far more agricultural. Mm -hmm. And as you get, you know, the western, the eastern half of the state is far more industrial. So especially like, because that's where Detroit is, Flint, so on and so forth. Ann Arbor and Dexter kind of stands out because there's a lot of agriculture in that area. Like you go get over to Bill, um, like Bellevue, which is a little bit south of um, Ann Arbor, south and west of Ann Arbor. That's still kind of a uh, kind of a um, farm town. But outside of that, like Detroit, Flint, Ypsilanti, there's a lot of industry on the um, eastern half of the state. So, you know, like the western half of the state, Grand Rapids, you know, and those cities in, in south of there, there's a lot of um, a lot of agriculture, like cherries, berries, all that kind of mm-hmm. all that stuff up there. So, yeah. yeah, and we explore all of that um, through the Food Access in Michigan project. We conducted a lot of. Um, interviews with key informants across the state that worked for you know and that was like really broad like they worked in NGOs a lot of them um you know were doing kind of consulting and Mm -hmm. we tried to just capture as many um you know as many people that were working at different levels of the food system in Michigan and um I worked a lot um we did focus groups and I worked in that um with um, migrant farmers across the state um, mm-hmm. and that I think is a big part that's um, not really captured in yeah. a lot of literature um, and specifically working in that and seeing the disparities but I mean a bit, like an important part of the project is just the intersectionality um, so there are a lot of like cultural blocks and we talk you know, access is very broad. There's psychological access. Mm-hmm. It's not only physical um, and cultural access and what, you know, you know, people in Michigan are talking a lot about, like, good food and giving people good food. And, like, what does that mean? You right. know, what does that mean for, um, you know, communities like Detroit and Flint? And, um, you know, we there was a lot of community building. So I have been able um, to work with some folks in Detroit, and that's been um, – you know, just they're doing great work out there. They're doing really great work, um, especially around urban farms and gardens. Um, you know, their uh, communities, especially communities of color, they're showing up and they're growing food for their community. And that's just like a really powerful thing, just that there. And I hope um, we're kind of that project is kind of wrapping up and I'm not so much working on it anymore. But, sure. you know, the findings of that are going to be very telling of of Michigan and, and the communities that often don't get highlighted in that work. 
is there a focus or is there a push towards circular um, circular uh, economies in the in the Michigan area when it comes to farming? And so, like in the Chicago in the Chicago area, like for specifically the urban farming, there's more of a push towards circular economies. You know, like yeah. you know, um, cradle to cradle production. So, you know, food waste turns into composting. Blah blah blah. You know, you know the life cycle of it. So, but um, really, one thing that we're really pushing is that you know in the in, in Illinois the southern portion of the state is very heavily um, uh, agriculturalized. And so, you know, a lot of the nutrients are, a lot of the food is grown there and eaten in the Chicago area or outside of that, you know, it's taken outside of those communities. And we're trying to figure out ways to push those nutrients back into the, into the southern portions of the state, as opposed to, you know, all the healthy compost, all the, you know, rich, usable compost being in the Chicago area. Has there been any, you know, given how widespread, you know, like Michigan, you can, there's large cities pretty much every, you know, every few, you know, every hour or so you'll find, you will you'll go from Jackson to Kalamazoo to Battle Creek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have big cities that are, you know, in, in between large stretches of, uh, large stretches of agricultural areas. Has there been any talk about connecting the two, you know, like the, the use of those resources or the production of those resources? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think um, in Michigan, um, and I can't speak a lot to the findings yet um, because they haven't been published. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Um, But I think a a need, and and to me it's an obvious need, and I think, you know, there are a lot of farmers in Michigan that are food insecure, and that's a, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a real thing, and I think that speaks a lot to the people that are producing, you know, food in Michigan. Like, are they able to eat, and they're able to nourish themselves? Um, So I think that kind of speaks to that, and, you know, that's a reality in a lot of places where agricultural, you know, where agriculture is big. And I think just, you know, kind of taking the lens and not only looking at consumers, but at the people that, you know, grow our food, that's also really important. And I think the study focuses on that as well. Right. And so, Jessica, you said that you worked in sustainable agriculture with the Peace Corps. You had a project where you were working on sustainable agriculture with the Peace Corps, correct? Yeah. So I did a, a year of grad school in sustainable agriculture and then... Um, transition to the Peace Corps. It was a joint program. It's called Masters International. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I was working in Honduras in, um, an in with an indigenous community up in the mountains of the Department of La Paz. Um, and I was supposed to work with the, the campesinos or the farmers, the local farmers there um, on sustainable agriculture. But um, I didn't really think they needed my help. <laughs> One year of grad school doesn't make me an expert in agriculture, and they're, yeah. they've been doing it for centuries. I mean, their ancestors have been doing it long before right. you know, exactly. I was even thought of. And so I think that that really opened my eyes to international development and what our role as um, privileged Americans is yeah. in that. Yeah. And uh, I realized that they... They didn't, they really didn't need my help in that way, you know, and they, they need access to land, Mm -hmm. you know, and water, Mm -hmm. um, and people to let them do what they already know how to do. Um, and also there were some cultural barriers too, with being a woman Mm -hmm. and doing, um, what's not, what's seen as a traditionally, um, job for men. Right. And so I ended up working with the women in the community Mm -hmm. and um, began a a women's group of about 20 women 
where we did different workshops on topics that they wanted to learn about, like domestic violence or leadership, things like that. And then at the end, they created a project, a joint project together um, that focuses on something that they realized was their biggest, um, not issue, but their biggest concern, Mm -hmm. um, which they they all decided that the health of their families was the most important thing to them. And the way they keep a healthy family is through nutrition. Mm -hmm. Um, And the largest source of protein for their families, um, and that's locally available, are eggs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them had chickens, but their chickens were kind of like all over the place. And so a lot of times they would lose the eggs because the chickens would lay them up in the mountain or a coyote would eat their chicken or they would find their chicken feeding off of garbage on the street. And so they decided that they wanted to do chicken coops. Mm -hmm. And so I fundraised with my family and friends in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and um, was able to raise enough money to build 20 chicken coops in the community with the women. So... I mean, that's part of the Peace Corps. You have to be super flexible. You never know what's going to happen. I go, yeah. I went in trying to do one form of food, right? Right. Um, and I came out doing another form. So, yeah. And so you returned from that and worked at the Field Museum, correct? Or went yes. to, eventually went to work at the Field Museum? Yes. I would imagine you probably took a little time off or just went straight to it. I, so... I actually uh, didn't finish my time in Honduras because we were evacuated due to um, the violence and danger in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, So they evacuated us. So I I left about six months early. um, And after a month of being back, I decided to go back on my own to finish the chicken coop project, to to really wrap things up and say a a good farewell, and also to bring my dog back because I had to leave her. So I went and I stayed for about another two months. But right before I left, I went to visit my friends at the Field Museum. And um, they told me about a position that was going to be available. And so um, when I got back, I I started, when, when I got back after the two extra months, I started in that position right away. So actually, I remember being on the plane in Tegucigalpa, trying to talk to their HR person about <laughs> my orientation. So it was kind of like I just had two days and then I went straight to work. So you were at the Field Museum for a couple of years, correct? About a year and a half before heading to the University of Michigan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you guys kind of help each other make that decision to go to the University of Michigan or <laughs> did you come to that decision separately, Beatrice? Um, it was really interesting because I don't think it was my sister's first choice it wasn't her first choice and it was my first choice um so I think we had an understanding that we weren't going to go to the same grad school and then it just Just happened that way um yeah for you know um, various reasons that we um wound up at the same you know at the same place after not having lived together for a very long time um yeah so it's kind of funny like that how it all worked out and there were some 
concerns in the beginning that Ann Arbor wasn't going to be big enough for the both of us. <laughs> sisters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Two Kanye sisters on top of that. And we, we didn't live together the first year because our family was so excited that we were both going to the same place. They're like, oh, you're going to get to live together. It's great to have family nearby. And we were like, no, we're not going to yeah. live together. <laughs> but we ended up living together the second year. And my parents loved that because then when they'd come to visit, it's make it easier on them. Make it way yeah. easier. Yeah. <laughs> were you were you, in, you enrolled in the um the what's I'm sorry Beatrice what's the initials is the SNR SNRE the School of Natural Resources and Environment. So, um, so Jessica, were you involved enrolled in that school as well? Or no, were, I was in the School of Education. Okay, with a focus on environment. Uh-huh. No, so my so the graduate program I did at the University of Michigan was in higher education. Okay, I'm taking poor notes. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I went a completely different route. Okay. Yeah. All right. With always the idea of supporting underrepresented students in STEM fields. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, piggybacking on something that um Beatrice said earlier is that you know the environmental field at the time, especially I think in higher education, was very was very male dominated very white male dominated and I, you know i think the higher education in general though is very yeah. white male dominated yeah. so like totally. i would imagine that's got to be a pretty steep um transition for both of you both of you right now working in environment working with an environmental focus as well as working in higher education kind of how do you deal with that and do you kind of try and offer your support to one another even though you're a couple states away now or do you just like kind of develop your own coping mechanisms for it I think um, I think we definitely work together on that, and I think just the it's all so connected, like the parallels between higher education and then the work. You know, seeing um, in my work that the environmental field is like you know very you know white and male dominated. It's kind of well, you know, who is having access to college and who above that, like who's going into environmental programs, which is a lot of the research that my sister does. Um, so I think in that way, we've been able to make all of these connections um, and in a lot of different ways work together, you know, though on separate projects, find a common ground and work together, um, you know, on similar things. And that's for me, that's like diversifying the environmental field mm-hmm. um, through the undergraduate research program that I run. Um, and I, you know, I gain a lot of insight from her and the research that she does in higher education. I think it's all really directly tied to each other. Right. But do you think the do you think undergraduate is the the undergrad level is the place to try and diversify the environmental field? Or should we start earlier, like looking at, you know, looking going as early as elementary school to try and introduce folks to it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely earlier. And I think that's we, you know, we worked in similar programs. So I worked in science first and then Mm -hmm. the work that my sister did at the Field Museum. And you see it at the middle school and then high school level and then even elementary level. Um, that that's where students or, you know, young, where the youth like start to put things together and at that capturing them at that age and, you know, um, having them connect to the land or, you know, through different ways, maybe through their culture or food, um, you know, they Mm -hmm. develop a really deep appreciation and understanding. Okay. Well, and, and I would just add too that, yeah, I think it's important for to expose children, you know, middle, middle school, even younger than that, like right. early mm-hmm. childhood education, um, 
in the environment and then help them foster that love for science and the environment throughout um, their K through 12 education. But then I think the issue then becomes their access to college because right. they can have yeah. jobs, sure. right? Doing stewardship work yeah. um, and do all the internships and all the programs. Mm -hmm. But if they really want to get into the field and get into those positions where there's decision-making happening, mm -hmm. um, where you're running programs or you're deciding how a program for urban youth or youth right. of color is going to look like, yeah. then you're going to need that college degree right. so that yeah. you get that job that gets you to that table, right. right? And I think that that's where the biggest challenge is. That's why I think that um, we need to work with really helping those students that are that that college is it that that's the path that they want to go and making sure that the experiences they have at the higher ed institutions that they attend are positive ones where they feel supported and where they find mentorship mm -hmm. um, and where they find you know financial aid mm -hmm. and all these right. things and continue to get involved in those in summer internships and fellowships um, in the environment and yeah. I think like from you asked before Juanita about like do uh do Beatriz and I ever think of mm -hmm. like partnering on a project or something like that I don't think we've necessarily sat down and specifically Not said like, this is yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's just laughs> kind of organically right but I think we talk a lot about this about yeah. mm -hmm. um diversifying the field of environmental of, of environmental conservation mm -hmm. and the importance of supporting our youth mm -hmm even beyond the elementary and high school level and specifically supporting them at the college level. Yeah. Right. And so I think that if we ever were to do something, it would be, I would love it for it to be something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's so many opportunities for that as well. I'm sorry, Beatrice, you go ahead, please. Oh no, I was just agreeing um, with Jessica and kind of um, thinking a lot of the, you know, the, those conversations that we have and a lot of the work that I'm doing now, I, you know, um, with our students, we have, um, so we recruit nationally from um, across um, different colleges and universities for students to come to the School of Natural Resources and Environment. And for eight weeks, they um, conduct research with um, faculty members, PhD students, and university um, researchers across different departments. And, um, you know, there are many programs similar to this, um, you know, that are putting um, underrepresented students in research positions. But what we, what we really wanted to do in DDCSP at the University of Michigan was also provide everything else that my sister just mentioned. So we do a lot of professional development. You know, um, we make sure that they not only have a mentor on campus, but also a mentor at their home institution. And then they have the cohort, um, yeah. which is so much support. And a lot of, some of them come from the same universities, but what we even noticed was that they were visiting each other. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the schools are on the East Coast and students, you know, they had their network here over the summer. They had support and that's what they really need. And they need, you know, to be also excel in their academics. And right. I think what my sister and I try to do for the students that we work with is, you know, really provide that network. Um, and, you know, the network really provides, you know, a lot of access to resources that are otherwise, you know, kind of unattainable a lot of times. Yeah. Right. Because if you don't, I mean, and 
sometimes they are available, but you don't know what to ask for either. Right. You know, mm-hmm. a lot, oftentimes, you know, you're st- we're still dealing with students that are, I mean, not to stereotype, but there are plenty of times where students of color are still their first generation mm-hmm. to go to college. I'm, I'm an example of that where I was the first, you know, first of my family to go to go away to college. You know, so you don't know what to ask for. You don't know what you're looking for because you have no frame of reference. So, and if you don't know what to ask for, you don't know how to get it or mm-hmm. you, know, you, you don't even know that you're missing out on it. Um, Beatrice, I know we are, our time is relatively short with you, so I had a couple, mm-hmm. you know, a couple other questions to throw at you really quickly. Sure. So specifically, so all right, we mentioned Dr. Dor- Dorsita Taylor, of course, the most, um, you know, I, I would venture to say that her most recognizable work is Green 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong, but that's the one I recognize <laughs> the most. At the time, at the time. Right exactly. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of other, you know, much bigger things happening down the line. But so that would that came out, and there was a splat. It, it was, um, I mean, it was very impactful. I think it forced the environmental field, which is largely, you know, largely liberals and lots of progressives in air quotes, you know, thinking that they're, you know, they're very inclusive and that they're doing the right, doing the right things. Um, in, in thinking about everyone and including everyone, but I think it um, really kind of put the mirror out in front of the environmental field and let them know that, yeah, you know, we could do a much better job of incorporating people of color, retaining people of color, encouraging people of color to participate in our organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Were, were you at the school while that work was going on and were you involved in it in, in, in any, any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I conducted... Um some interviews um, for that um, specific project. And it was, yeah, it was so interesting when the report came out um, and Dr. Taylor was able to put all of that together and, um, you know, the findings. And a lot of it is just, you know, the work that Jessica and I work on, it's the pipeline. You know, a lot of environmental organizations are like, you know, well, there aren't people of color applying to these, you know, positions. And um, that's just not true, you know, because a lot of it is also recruitment and outreach. Like, who are you recruiting to? Where are you recruiting to? Um, Also, you know, holding up the mirror and saying like, well, who's part of our organization as is? Are we a welcoming environment? Do we have a diversity and equity and inclusion mission? You know, is it, are we focusing just on diversity? Like, are we actually doing inclusion? I think that's like a really Mm -hmm. big question now that a lot of organizations are becoming aware of the diversity aspect. Well, the second step is inclusion. Like, do people of color, underrepresented, you know, folks in your organization, do they feel like they have a voice, you know, or are they tokenized? Um, Exactly. You know, and or or are they forced to assimilate? You know, like you can have a person of color there. I mean, I see lots of different organizations. Yeah, actually, I'll give it my own personal um, example. You know, I I was oftentimes I was the only person of color working at a lot of places that I throughout my career. And once I got in there so that I could fit in, you know, like everyone's talking about friends, but nobody wanted to talk about Martin or living single or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, they wanted to talk about hockey. I want to talk about Mm -hmm. basketball. I'm like, you know, there's a there's differences. And, you know, they were expecting me to assimilate as opposed to them being able to adjust to accept my way of life, you know, even as things as simple as, you know, um, being frowned upon for me to have um, facial hair and, you know, an Afro back, you know, like is, I mean, I graduated from college in 2000 and, you know, I noticed that when I wore an Afro to interviews, I was not offered a job, but like when I cut my hair, I started getting job offers all the time, you know, mm-hmm. like just little, little microaggressions like that or over being overlooked like that. And you mentioned 
recruitment, one of my favorite things and, you know, one of my favorite comments is how um, people in those positions in those jobs would say, excuse me, at some of those companies, the NGOs, the nonprofits, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we don't really know how or where to find people of color to recruit for these for these positions that we have. And that's, you know, like at the very least, you know, you've heard of HBCUs. So historically back black colleges mm-hmm. you can go there and have a college fair or a job recruitment drive i mean it's not i mean it's not rocket science but you know these but like you said there's the need to hold that mirror in front of you and really make yeah. like look mm-hmm. at what you're doing and what you could do better you know mm-hmm. so i've heard rumors um that dr taylor was raising funds to do a second part to that study so the initial study if i remember properly was focused on nonprofits and in, on uh ngos my understanding, if I've heard this correctly, is that there's a next step where she wants her um, the team to focus on the for-profit sector, so environmental engineering, consulting firms, things of that nature. Is that have you heard any truth to that? Any um, any uh, rumors in that regard as well? You're going to get me in trouble. No, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot confirm um, nor deny. I think deny. it's an, an interest. Like this is her life's work. Um, you know, she's like deeply invested in this. Yeah. And um, I know that that, you know, this is Green 2.0 wasn't, you know, the the beginning and the end, you right. know. So uh, there will definitely be things in the future. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out. <laughs> green, green 3.0 coming, coming down the pipeline. <laughs> um, so uh, you have you listened to pe- previous episodes of the podcast? I listened to one. Um, not, you know, I think somebody in the room here has not, they're not a fan yet, so that's all right. <laughs> Brand is strong. We'll get you on board. You, you know, know what's funny is that she doesn't li- like podcasts. She doesn't I listen don't. to them. And I, I love podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so you all should feel very special. Well, we, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. So the, if, if you've listened to a couple um, episodes of the podcast all the way through, I'm sure you were introduced to uh, Dusabling. <laughs> I didn't listen to it all the way through. You're making me be very honest. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to you, most of it. <laughs> Juanita, Juanita, would you mind explaining to uh, the Kanye sisters what uh, the sobbling is? Oh, sure. Um, are you familiar with Columbusing? No. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I this is great. So, um, you know, Columbusing is, uh, you know, when... Uh, something is sort of culturally appropriated or mm. discovered, uh, <laughs> you know, and and so dusabling is just the act of taking something back, uh, reclaiming it by, you know, community of color that um, yeah. that had it, you know, kind of co-opted, you know, yeah. originally. <laughs> but uh, and of course, it's named for Jean Baptiste Dusabel, um, you know, our, our founder of, of Chicago. So you know. In the first act of yeah. taking something back is our history of, you know, Du Sable. Right. Was it Lewis and Clark that Columbus, Chicago from? <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> so, yeah, we're, so we're trying to take back his um, you know, and, and give him some uh, additional appreciation. I mean, there's not a I mean, there's not a Du Sable Street. There's Du Sable High School. But, you know, there should be more attention given to um to Dusabel is the you know the, I mean that's the third largest city in the in the in the country so yeah. you know I mean that's an amazing feat what he what yeah. he did so do you have an example of Dusabling that you've been a part of Beatrice before we before we have uh, before we let you go I know our time with you is getting fairly short oh, of, of reclaiming something yeah um, 
so I think. And not you personally, but even one that you've yeah. experienced, you know. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I've a lot of times, um, like right, the culture of like the environmental field, you know, mm-hmm. is very different from things that, um, you know, like how I grew up and how I was raised, and uh, a big. I feel like a big part of that is just. Um, it's so funny because I can answer this for my sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think she she uh, she Do talked it. about that too. Like, um, uh, well, yeah, you know, your Peace Corps experience, right? You know, um, intending to modernize or bring sustainability or sustainable practices to you know to the mm-hmm. campesinos there, but. They were fine. They yeah. had sustainable practices. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be there. Right. <laughs> right. It was when their land was taken away right. by U.S. Yeah. companies. And Monsanto came in and started selling them seeds. And yeah. that's like where things started going wrong. Yeah. But I want to hear Beatriz answer that question. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, going to say, sorry. what's the example? Because I'm sure Jessica probably has a couple other examples of Bisabli. I'm, so. like, so stumped. Um, but I... Uh, I don't, and now I'm just like thinking about um, maybe of where I do that myself. Like a lot of times working with youth, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like you're, I'm always like, oh yeah, like we're going to learn about all of these things. And, you know, the youth themselves, they, they have a lot of the answers already. Um, mm-hmm. And that's always like really surprising to me and actually really inspiring. Um, so maybe that's sometimes when I do that, um, I think it's, you know, uh, I'm so stumped. You're well, gonna have to really edit this. Yeah, what was, no, it's all good. We we leave it all in. We leave it all in. You know, there's just no editing here. What was the example? Um, uh, uh, Jessica's example that you had, that you had in mind. Of when she does that. Yeah, I feel, her disabling. Uh, oh. Yeah, especially with. So I always think of like her clothing, or like specifically her earrings that she wears, as like such a statement of kind of you know, like in the work that she does, like huh. especially higher education, like it's very, um, you know, like suits and high heels and stuff, and then she's you know like in her professional wear, and she just has this like bright color earrings, or these like, really <laughs> elaborate earrings that she's very proud of. So that's like I thought of that automatically, and I think a lot of yeah, and you know. I don't know if that was, like, a correct answer, but that was, like, the first thing that popped in my head. There's no right or wrong answer. (laughs) I feel like that's taking back space, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where it's Well, that's more of a code-switching thing then, right? Not code-switching. And academia is a place that we, people of color, have been historically and systematically kept out of, Mm -hmm. right? And I remember feeling always more at home within the environmental conservation field because I could wear my hiking boots to work every day or I can wear my um, my headbands from Honduras and Guatemala and and Beatriz actually telling me like you know you're not gonna be able to wear that (laughs) working at the University of Michigan Um, and I didn't wear the headbands anymore but the, the earrings definitely and I do kind of like use them in those spaces as in you know this 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 is my space too. Right, mm-hmm. I'm reclaiming it. It doesn't only, it's not only for certain people. Exactly, because you know, so in academia, like it is, it's more accepted for them to be eccentric. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. you look at um, Cornell West is a is an academic and he's somewhat eccentric, but you look at how much work he had to 
put in yeah. to be allowed to be that comfortable and be himself. You know, there was he was probably one of the foremost people to stop code switching. You know what I mean? So like, I think reclaiming that space is a, is an example of not code switching anymore. You know, and even like I mentioned earlier, I, I felt like I had to code switch. Mm-hmm. You know, I had yeah. to cut my hair and I had to, you know, start talking about Ross and Rachel, even though I had I gave <laughs> little to no. Uh, uh, cares about it, you know. Yeah. Um, but when I but when I felt more comfortable, when I stopped doing those things, my career changed and it became a little bit more successful. You know, um, still got you know still have some strides to make, but you know, like better things occurred to me when I stopped, you know, co- trying to code switch and started reclaiming that space and trying to be more be more comfortable in my own skin and just you know this is me. This is what you're going to have to accept. If I like to wear bright dangly earrings, I don't. I wear <laughs> more should. studs than anything. <laughs> I, have, um, I thought of one in terms of clothing and appearance. Um, so, working like in the environmental field in um, you know Ann Arbor, that's it's a lot of Patagonia sweaters, a lot of REI, the puffy vests, hiking boots, and yeah. so many vests, so much pride. Oh, I didn't have a single plaid shirt before I moved to Michigan. There's this one thing that I was always doing grad school when I had it, when I would have presentations or, um, you know, when I knew that I was going to be around a lot of people, I would wear my um, Chicago Bulls throwback sweatshirt all the yes. time, um, when they were the 1997 champions. And I was actually wearing it the other day and I sent a, I took a picture of myself and I sent it to my sister and she's like, I love that you wear that sweatshirt you know, like in Ann Arbor um, and I wear it everywhere. So that's, that's mine. There you go. <laughs> so, very cool. Well, uh, I, do you have to get going? I do have to okay. jump out. Um, but this was great. It was nice talking to all of you. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thanks for taking the time to hear our stories. Well, no, I really appreciate it. And I think we may, um, we're going to hold on to Jessica for a couple more minutes, if yeah. that's okay with you, and ask, ask a few more questions. But, yeah, Beatrice, this was awesome. And, um, you know, it's been way too long since we heard from you. We hope, you know, next time you're in town, you um, – we, it's around the time that we can ha- that we're having an EOC event, so that you yeah. can kind of catch up with the team and all that good stuff. So yes, definitely. Yeah. So thanks for jump- joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. All right, and definitely, you know, like subscribe to our podcast now. We're, <laughs> yeah, now we are, we're, we're officially on iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye. Right, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. So. So, all right. So, going back to your timeline. So, you were at, you were working for the Field Museum and then decided to go back to college mm-hmm. um, at University of Michigan. So, like, what drew you, drew you to the University of Michigan? You know what? Before I do that, like, how did you enjoy living in Ann Arbor? Because that's kind of seen as a kind of a hippie, you know, in the state of Michigan, that's kind of seen as like the hippie environmentalist town. Is that? Yeah. No, definitely. I think so. Um I liked Ann Arbor. I was I was at Cornell for that one year, and I really didn't like Ithaca. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's gorgeous in terms of natural spaces, yeah. but um, the lack of diversity and yeah. lack of not even just diversity <clears throat> in people, but in things <clears throat> to do and expose yourself to um, was a lot. And then having that be my first experience leaving Chicago yeah. and going away to school. Um, it was really tough on me. And I had a friend at Cornell who's from Ann Arbor, and she told me 
when I told her that I was going to go to Michigan, she's like, oh, you're going to love Ann Arbor. It's just like Ithaca, but bigger. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but luckily, Ann Arbor is bigger, but and it's also, I feel like it does have a little more diversity in terms of things to do, mm-hmm. um, things to expose yourself to. Also, I really like the proximity to Detroit. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, it could be even closer. Uh, but so I, I did, um, I would go to Detroit uh, quite often to the DIA and yeah. um, hang out in Mexican town. Uh, so it was, I, I went to a Lions game. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was fun to have Detroit nearby. Cool. And it's closer to Chicago as well. And then all of the natural um landscapes and all that you know pure mm-hmm. michigan right so it kind of did have all these things that i liked at times i was concerned that it felt like a bubble mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so when i left ann arbor about a year ago now actually next weekend will be a year this weekend um I was sad in the beginning, but it only took a few months before realizing, wait, Chicago has way more to offer. <laughs> why, <laughs> why was I ever sad? <laughs> so, yeah. Did you feel that, um, so I remember you mentioning there was some racial, ten- um, some tension on at, on campus at Cornell, correct? Like you just felt that there felt um, some tension and uncomfort um, around race and acceptance. Did, did you feel any of that at University of Michigan as well or no? Yeah, like, definitely. I, mean, I think, yeah. It, I guess it ex- not to the same degree is what I'm... No, I okay. feel like it, it does. It existed to the same degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the The huge difference is that I had a support system at Michigan. Gotcha. Um, that wasn't only made up of um, my peers in my cohort, but also um, a few faculty and definitely a lot of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also other administrators throughout the university and because it's something diversity and inclusion um is something that the university talks about they have conversations right so they don't just you know brush it under the rug as what i felt what was happening at cornell um Mm -hmm. and i had no support system um and so although those things happen a lot Mm -hmm. in michigan and even if you were to look at both experiences, um, I think you would say, wow, there's like way more racial tension at Michigan's campus. But I think that's sure. just because there are all these platforms for students to speak up mm-hmm. um, and to organize and to um, be activists, right? To take action that didn't exist at Cornell. Um, and if it did, it was, it was minimal and mm-hmm. mainly... Um, at the undergraduate level. So graduate students were not part of those things. Sure. So we're going to have you start thinking about a disabling moment. And <laughs> actually, Cornell, that's where um, Sarah Naiman is, correct? Mm-hmm. We'll have to reach out. I'll have to check in with her and see how she's doing and maybe have a follow-up recording with her. It's like when you go back into the backlog and listen to the episodes, that's one that you can check out. Sarah Naiman's um, okay. attending uh, Cornell University right now. She's an yeah. EOC member as well. Oh, great. Yeah, I'd so. love to hear uh yeah, you guys should talk. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll shoot an email introduction or something. So um, do you see yourself ever going back into officially going into the inf- environmental field again? Or do you really just want to focus directly on kind of the pathways for um, young people of color to get into colleges? Or do you are you thinking of focusing specifically on pushing them into STEM careers or maybe environmental careers? 
So my focus has always been pushing um, students into STEM careers, okay. specifically underrepresented students, um, and in the sciences and environmental conservation. Sure. Uh, my current job, the, that isn't the focus. Sure. Um, but I remember the first you know, week, my orientation, telling my supervisor, this is something I'm very passionate about. And I know that it's not a focus right now, but I want you to keep it in mind so that um, if the possibility or opportunity comes up to do this work, you know, I would love to do it. And she's really great. She's always asking, you know, me, you know, start thinking of ways that we can incorporate STEM education. Um, she'll send me emails about STEM conferences and things like that. So it's so I do feel comfortable enough that this position eventually will lead to to some some of that work um do i want to go back into the environmental field yeah like do you miss the conservation work yeah the... every day yeah every day <laughs> i miss it i miss yeah. it so much yeah. um not only because i got to wear my hiking boots every I was, day. that's what i was thinking yeah <laughs> um but just because i mean that was my passion i mean yeah. that was before i knew what it even meant like i loved it um and so it's something that I would definitely love to go back into, but I feel like I would have to, I'm, well, I'll go back. Like I always try to incorporate it into anything that I do. Mm -hmm. So when I was working at the National Forum on Higher Education for the Public Good at the University of Michigan during my graduate studies, which does primarily research, you know, they knew day one that environmental conservation was my thing, right? And so I made sure everybody turned the lights off when they left the office and that we had a good recycling system going on. And I was always talking about how I was bridging higher ed and environmental conservation. I even wrote a little, the little piece that I shared. Um, but so it's, it's a part of me. And so I don't consider it like a job anymore, like mm -hmm. a career. Like it's, I just take it with me wherever I go. Um, I, whenever I visit folks at the Field Museum, like I'm just like, tell me what you're doing, what yeah. you're getting involved in. Like I want to be there again. I spent so much time there. It's definitely something that I would love to do. Are you a member? I'm not a member of the Field right. Museum. We'll have to go to members night then because, oh. you know, I'm oh, yeah, they have still a member. members night. Oh, it's so fantastic. Yeah, it is really ever, great. So. Uh, I remember working members. Night. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be a completely different. Um, From the other side. Exactly. It would be a side. completely different aspect for you. You'll you'll really get to enjoy it this time as opposed to like hustling. It's like, what do you do to kind of scratch that uh, conservational itch then? Like, you know. Um, I try to find ways to get outdoors so at work um i'll well when i was working at the university of michigan i even with my co-workers they had this thing that was like winter walks on wednesdays oh, and cool. they you know during the winter i would get a group of us together and we would go out and walk or like tuesday treks you know <laughs> and uh, we would get out and like walk around the campus and i would you know show them oh look there's like a cicada or like this and that and they'd be like you know, if you wouldn't have been with us on this walk, we wouldn't have noticed half the things you pointed <laughs> out. Um, and now in Little Village, it's a little different because there actually is a lack of green space. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it's a very big lack of green space, actually. So I still do my walks. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a big... Um, 
a believer that nature is everywhere. Like we mm-hmm. humans live in nature, yeah. right? Um, and so I just try to find it wherever I am um, and and connect with it. And some other things I try to do is to stay in touch with the environmental conservation world through yeah. EOC, right, yeah. right. Uh, through my, my friends at the Field Museum, um, going out to those stewardship days. I just found out the stewardship uh, or restoration days at the park that I live close to. So I'll, I'll be signing up for that. Um, Are you back yeah. in... Um, Albany Park, I think you said you yeah, were up there. I'm back in Albany Park. Okay. Yeah. So I work in Little Village, but I live in Albany Park. Right. Yeah. And so like have you are you in touch with um Little Village Environmental Justice Organization at all? Or maybe which is Ovejo or maybe um Pero, which works over in Pilsen? Because you're right, there is a, a a tremendous lack of open space in those areas and those are two organizations. Obviously Pero focuses more on Pilsen, but those are two organizations that are looking to try and make create more access to open space in those areas little um Avejo was had worked with the city um to finally have a park opened up and they they're put, um working on some brownfields potential brownfield redevelopment projects mm-hmm. to create more open space in the in the area and also trying to create more access to the uh to the uh, uh south branch of the chicago river the collateral channel et cetera. Et cetera. Right. have you done any work with them at all um unfortunately no um Little Vill- uh, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization and Enlace do partner on, on some things. I'm, I don't, and actually our gardening work that Enlace does is in partnership with El Vejo and other oh, organizations in the community. Okay. Um, but in terms of the work that I do in college access, I right. think because it's a different field, although I'm always trying to make the connection, um, I don't get to partner with them directly. Okay. But... Um, I do have contacts with them. One of, actually, a good friend of both my sister and 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 me from grad school, um, works at El Vejo now. So she went to grad school with us. Juliana. Juliana, yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. She, she was yeah. in my sister's cohort, and then I took a class with her, um, and so we all became good friends. And so, so I know they have good people over there. Cool. What park are you close to? You, you mentioned a park. Yeah, so I'm close to two parks, actually, Eugene Field and um, Gompers Park. Oh, mm-hmm. so our good friend Mary Eileen uh, Sullivan from uh, uh, formerly of Friends of the Parks, that was like one of, her, one of the parks that she was most active at. So cool. It's yeah. kind of closing that circle. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's cool. All right. So um, have you had the chance to think about a disabling um, yeah. Okay. To, uh, to reclaim. Well, I think like when I when you were asking that question earlier, I was thinking of a lot of things that yeah. I get um, pretty passionate about in terms of just like environmental conservation in general. And we think of environment, how all these trends come up about oh, yeah. like yeah. use reusable bags, <laughs> right? Um, that's entirely like, new. Like, yeah, that's yeah, never like, existed it's so before. New, right. right. Um, <laughs> And I think of like in Mexico, you have the colorful like woven bags that you mm-hmm. take to the open market, which yeah. is like, that's kind of a farmer's market, you know, like yeah. all these concepts where it's just, um, so, so I use those bags. Like I, I, whenever I, somebody from my family goes to Mexico, I ask them to bring me bring back those bags back. and I use them, you know, carefully because I feel I, 
I feel like they're going to become a trend eventually because they're <laughs> super cool, you know. Yeah. But these are like my ancestors have been using these for so long. Um, and I think also one big thing for me in both um, grown up, growing up, visiting Mexico, spending my summers there, and then also the time that I lived in Honduras, um, one thing that I saw a lot was... Um, like, and I don't know if this is exactly to Sowling, but um, the, or maybe it's the reverse actually. Um, so like Coca-Cola, right, is really big in Latin America. Okay. And, and I remember growing, when I was growing up, they had all the Coca-Cola project, products in glass bottles. And we would have to return the glass bottle to the vendor, which my grandfather had a little store where he sold it and, and he needed the glass bottles in order to get just as many back, you know, to sell more. And so if you ever uh, were, had to take your drink to go, they would pour it into a plastic baggie and put a straw in it. And you would be like walking down the street with your plastic baggie. And then I remember one year we came back and they had plastic bottles like everything just turned into plastic and i was like oh this is so i mean for years i had seen plastic bottles here in the u.s right but that was the first time in mexico that i had seen coca-cola products in plastic bottles um and i was like okay and then when i spent time in honduras um I would hear a lot of peace corps volunteers or foreigners talk about how um the local people are so uh, inconsiderate about their garbage, right? That they would take these plastic bottles and like just chuck them out the 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 bus, right? right? Or like, do you see all these plastic bottles like on the side of the mountain that's like so beautiful and nature filled and all this stuff? And I remember getting really upset because I was thinking, well, f- well, first of all, there were no plastic bottles, yeah, right. Then you you all introduce plastic bottles, <laughs> right? <laughs> and didn't introduce like a proper way to uh, to get rid of them, right? Or like yeah. a recycling method, or you know proper waste management. You just right. like expected people to do do what you do with the resources you have and all this stuff. And yeah. so that's why we have that. And so I feel. A dusabling thing that needs to happen is that we need to reinstate only glass bottles in Latin America. So maybe that's not something that's currently happening, but yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah, no, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, because part of it was like the um, it's, it, it, you're incentivized to recycle those bottles. Just like in Michigan, they have right. the the um, can or bottle deposit. Like now, when I was in when I was in college, you know. Not too many years ago, just a few years ago. I'm very young still. So, um, you're like, <laughs> really? We, we don't have a belly laugh about my age. <laughs> so, <laughs> you brought it up. They didn't. <laughs> there was very little recycling outside of paper in those in the um, bottles. Like, you know, I have a friend that works in uh, as a solid waste coordinator for um, uh, I want to say Calhoun County in Michigan. And just within the last three or four years, they developed a like a tire recycling program, or you know. Um, medical waste recycling program they, there was really very little recycling but you were incentivized to recycle bottles and cans there um so it happened on a in a on a big bad way in a big scale it's like but 
you know, you were incentivized to do it, just like in Latin, what you were describing in Latin America, it was, you were incentivized to collect those bottles and cans. And now, you know, they took away, took away that incentive. And of course, people are just going to dispose of it. There's no, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Like, it was a great conversation. It was great to have uh, our first sister environmentalist team or siblings yeah. pair, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess technically yeah, no, because there was the um, the Eco House episode where where the girls kind of uh, where my girls kind oh, of I invaded the episode. Oh, so yeah. you know, <laughs> so you guys are second. You know, you <laughs> they're the junior environmentalists. Exactly right. They're the um, the the junior uh, auxiliary board of the um, e- uh, environmentalists of color. So all right. Well, is there is there anything else that you wanted to say or add or anything like that? And what are you doing? Anything you want to promote or like? Um, can right. people make donations to Enlace to help? They, they are can. 501c3, they, correct? Yeah, we are 501c3. It's enlacechicago.org. Um, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of things in the community. We currently had a fundraiser for Valentine's Day called Beer My Valentine. Mm, and beer. I mean, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and in April, we're having another our gala, our yearly gala fundraiser. So people should check out our, our website. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thanks a lot. And, um, what's that website? One last time is in last say Chicago. Dot org. Dot org. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yay. Juanita, did you want to, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank and you. again, we're now on iTunes. You yeah, subscribe yeah. to us on iTunes, drop us a five star rating, <laughs> <laughs> all that good stuff. Um, again, I'm, Bryant Williams. And I'm Juanita Garcia. And we're the uh, Shades of Green podcast. Thank you very much.